This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Can money buy happiness? Philosophers and scientists have been trying to answer that question since the beginning of time. Dr. Sonia Lubomirsky, author of The Myths of Happiness, has a whole new take on a very old conundrum. We'll have that coming up. Plus, do a lot of the ads you see leave you shaking your head? That's because advertising and marketing is overwhelmingly aimed at younger demographics. Zoomer Media VP David Kravitz will have more on why that should matter to us. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Dr. Henry Morgenthaler, Canada's controversial abortion rights crusader, passed away this week at the age of 90. He opened Canada's first abortion clinic in Montreal in 1969, launching a long legal battle that landed him in jail. He went on to become one of the key players in the Supreme Court of Canada's 1988 ruling that declared Canada's abortion law unconstitutional. Despite new laws, Morgenthaler remained a polarizing figure. His Toronto clinic was firebombed and he took to wearing bulletproof vests to work. In 2008, he was awarded the Order of Canada by former Governor-General Mikhail Jean. It's a big change from what many Zoomers experienced when they entered the workforce. Young mothers are now out-earning dads in record numbers. According to a report from the Pew Research Centre, 67% of mothers aged 31 to 46 earn higher wages than their husbands. Among mothers aged 47 to 65, only 19% make more than their spouses. How far have we come? In 1960, only 4% of working moms out-earned their husbands. What also deserves mentioning is that the percentage of families in which the dad is the breadwinner and the mom is the homemaker dropped from about 70% in 1960 to 31% in 2011. Zoomer car buyers are more important to the American auto industry than ever. That's according to a new study by the University of Michigan Transportation Research Institute. It found that in 2011, adults in the 55 to 64-year-old age group were 15 times more likely to buy new cars or trucks than 18 to 24-year-olds. In a separate study, the Institute found that the percentage of 19-year-olds with a driver's license had fallen below 70%, its lowest point in nearly 30 years. And finally, an 87-year-old World War II veteran has parachuted from a plane in Ohio to support his ailing great-grandson. Clarence Turner of Fairfield says he wanted to generate attention for the plight of 10-month-old Julian Couch, who suffers from a lung disease that could require a transplant. The last time Turner jumped out of an airplane was to celebrate his 85th birthday, and he hopes to make another parachute jump at an older age 
than former President George H.W. Bush, who's 88. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It's an age-old question, can money buy happiness? In the quest for an answer, modern social science has taken over from philosophy, and the latest findings are quite different from what you hear in love songs and stories of romance. Here's what I learned as I continued my conversation on the myths of happiness with Dr. Sonia Lubomirsky. I should say that it does make a difference. What's amazing to me, actually, is the research shows that people who make a huge, you know, if you make $500,000 a year, you're going to be happier than someone who makes $400,000 a year, and they're going to be happier than someone who makes $200,000 a year. So even at the highest levels, there's still differences in happiness, um, but the differences are pretty small, so they're not very, they're not very large. Um, and I have a whole chapter in my book, The Myths of Happiness, about, about money and happiness, and the takeaway message, which is that it's not really money that makes you happy, it's how you spend it, it's what you spend it on. So it turns out that people who have money, but they spend it on philanthropy, for example, they give it away to others to help others to contribute to the world. And people who spend money on experiences as opposed to possessions. So they're not like buying the biggest TV set or the nicest car, but maybe they're, you know, spending their money on having dinners with friends or traveling or learning a new language, helping themselves grow as a person. Those people are, are going to be happier. So it's really how you spend your money that matters. You also talk about getting older and also about illness. What is your takeaway on illness and how not to be devastated by a, a bad right. diagnosis? Right. And, you know, an illness is, can be very devastating. Um, again, I want to stress that um, what research shows that, is that people are remarkably resilient and so they, they can adapt even to sort of some pretty dire diagnoses. Um, most people are very are quite positive, and so and actually one of my one of my favorite studies was a was a study of breast cancer survivors, and two thirds of these women reported that the cancer actually kind of brought positive changes to their lives. That they they kind of re- reprioritized what was really important to them. They learned who their true friends are. They they sort of learned that they have strengths of character that they didn't know they had. It got them closer to their to their partners or their friends or their family members. So this is kind of an example of sort of how how positive and, and resilient people are. Now, one exception is that if you have an illness that's sort of a deteriorating condition or if you're in pain, I mean, that's something that you just cannot adapt to. And so that that's the most difficult kind of situation. Have you given thought to how if you experience those positive things in illness, how do you sustain them after? It's interesting because, um, I mean, people, some people report that they really do sustain them after, that they, they feel like their priorities in life have changed, and, and that really stays with them their whole life, so assuming, let's say, they recover from the illness. Um, and some people, they don't. They kind of go back to what they were before. It's kind of like when you have a, a major scare, like, or you almost die in a car accident. I don't know how to make it last. I mean, that's kind of the million-dollar question or the billion-dollar question. Um, I think you have to continue to remember and to continue to appreciate what you have. You know, a lot, I, I talk a lot about research on appreciation and gratitude in the book, but that takes effort. I mean, you have to really, like, every day, maybe every morning you wake up, you want to kind of recall that time in your life and, and really appreciate your health now or your family or your work or whatever. And so, but it, it takes effort. It does take effort. <laughs> I try to do that. It's very hard. <laughs> um, in your first book, as you're talking about gratitude and strategies that, that make you happier, writing letters of gratitude and things like that. And I, I just saw you quoted as saying that, that you, you don't do those things. You find them kind of hokey. 
Yeah, I mean, I myself find them kind of hokey, um, but that doesn't mean anything um, because there's lots of strategies that we can use to become happier, and some people have to sort of, we have to find kind of what fits our personalities or our goals or values. I just think like keeping gratitude journal feels kind of trite to me, but, but uh, lots of people come up to me and they say that they do that every day or they do that once a week and it really helps them and they makes them happy. And I've, and I've shown in research that that helps people. So one of the themes of my research is the importance of fit, that we have to find what fits our sort of personality and our, uh, and our lifestyle and our resources and our strengths and weaknesses. Are there kind of a top three things that we should all try to make ourselves happier? <laughs> Yeah, you know, I often get asked that question, and um, I, I used to really hate that question because I felt that, well, I couldn't really simplify the research in that way, but I, I actually think I have an answer that, that I've sort of come up with by looking sort of at all the research. And I think the top three things that really make us happy are, one is relationships. Anything we can do to nurture, enhance, improve our relationships is going to contribute to our happiness. Number two is, is sort of positive thinking. Anything that, that helps us think gratefully, positively, optimistically about our life uh, is, is related to happiness. And so anything we can do to kind of think more positively, not, not be in denial, but just sort of, you know, um, kind of be more resilient, more positive is important. And the third thing is control. Sort of having control, autonomy over your life is really important to happiness. Not, not all of us are so lucky that we have a lot of autonomy or control in our, in our jobs or in our sort of uh, our day-to-day lives. But, but if we are, then that's something that's important to, to kind of cultivate. Okay. Dr. Sonia Lubomirsky, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. If spending money the right way can make us happy, is the advertising industry helping us to get that done? I'll have that coming up. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. It's a hangover from the age of madmen, and it has a huge impact on the world of media. Even though Zoomers do most of the spending in our economy, the lion's share of advertising is directed at Gen X and the millennials, the generation aged between 18 and 32. I live in the U.S. and the U.S. market within a few years. At least half of the adult population will be over uh, 50 years old in age, and I would imagine that's probably true here in Canada as well. And those people have most of the money. They uh, have the predominance of the purchasing power in in terms of actual um, uh, sales, even in routine categories like consumer packaged goods, um, dishwashing detergent, what have you. uh, They account for at least half of the purchases made. That's Michael Smith of Nielsen NeuroFocus, which specializes in using neurological testing for consumer research. He was the keynote speaker at Zoomer Media's Second Select Symposium on Advertising and Aging here at the Zoomerplex this week. And our own David Kravitz released some eye-opening new research on this economic mismatch. 90% of ad dollars go to people younger than baby boomers and seniors. So if you divvy that up between the millennials and Gen X, about 50 cents out of every ad dollar is aimed at them on the theory that they're still behaving the way young people always behaved at that age and they're still as desirable, and they're not. They are unemployed or underemployed. They don't have the money. They're still living at home with their parents. And they're, so they're delaying all these steps toward independent uh, consumerhood, if you will, 
and delaying and delaying and delaying, and that's why that those ad dollars that are spent against them can't possibly return anything. Uh-huh. And why should we care? You could look at it as an inside the industry, inside baseball thing that we shouldn't care about. But it, it masks, or at least it might be the, the canary in the coal mine for a, a much bigger issue, which is what if the definition of adulthood, young adulthood, is changing permanently? If 80 is the new 60 or 60 is the new 40, why can't 25 be the new 15? <laughs> oh, my goodness. And in some ways, the dependency that the millennials have in their 20s, well into their 20s, is what the boomers had when they were teenagers. So it's not – so that's, of course, a much larger question involving education and social policy and so on. So the advertising is just like the thin edge of the wedge. It's got the most dramatic statistics. But it's a sign of a much bigger topic. Now, the other side of the coin is that few advertising dollars are targeted at Zoomers. And I believe the theory is that they've already made their brand choices and they're never going to change and they're never going to try anything new. That's, that's correct. That's half the answer. The other half is that they don't spend as much. Because the advertisers are, again, trapped in the previous generation, the boomers' parents or grandparents. You know, you're 65. You've got five, six, seven, eight years left, you know, on this mm. earth. And you've got nothing left to buy. But the boomers uh, are, A, well, they're spending way more. And, B, their brand choices are not locked in. There's very profound research that shows that they're not as loyal uh, they're, they're every bit as disloyal, if you will, as any other age group. They're just as likely to change and switch up on their brand choices. Just in crude numbers, uh, you're, you're looking at an audience of 4 million people and change when you're looking at the millennials and 15 million when you're looking at boomers and seniors combined. So how does it make sense to spend five times as much money on four million people who are unemployed or underemployed, have no money, still living at home, and only 10% of the money against 15 million people who are doing all the spending? It's really quite absurd when you think about it. If I'm a Zoomer, why should I want advertisers to target me more? Well, from the, from the consumer point of view, you may not want to, but um, I think Zoomer men and women, I think we do suffer if there is a misperception as to what's going on at each age and if the, if the views of how the different age groups are behaving is that far out of whack, then it eventually reflects itself in policy and social spending on other issues. For example, we underestimate right now, there's a serious underestimation of the degree to which Zoomers are starting their own businesses later in life and are, and are becoming entrepreneurs later in life. So this, the misperception fueled by the, the marketers, who ought to be the people that know the best, these misperceptions do spill over into other areas, and that's why it's worth uh, you know, pointing out these, these anomalies. Okay, well, we take the point very well. David okay. Kravitz, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Two members of the Rolling Stones are celebrating birthdays this weekend, and the entire band is getting ready for a second concert at the Air Canada Centre on their 50 and Counting Tour. In just a moment, we'll return with a classic hit from the legendary rock band. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing making people's lives better. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. 
It's time now for your international arts datebook tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. In New York City, a new presentation of Molnar's classic The Guardsman is the story of an actor who disguises himself to test his wife's fidelity. Director Gregory Mosher says Molnar wrote the play in hospital after his own wife's infidelity caused him to lose his mind. And although as a playwright he appreciated the laughter of audiences, he found it difficult to hear them enjoying lines he had written in tears. The Guardsman is on at the Lincoln Center. In Los Angeles, Shut Up and Dance debuted at the Hollywood Fringe Festival last year. The show about the redemptive power of dance is now running at the Working Stage Theatre. In London, the Tony Award-winning musical Once continues its open-ended run at the Phoenix Theatre. And in Venice, the Biennale is now open. The 55th International Art Exhibition includes exhibitions from around the world, including Canada, along with tours, workshops, and more. It continues until November. I'm Scott Walker with your International Arts Statement. This week, the Rolling Stones will take the stage at the Air Canada Centre for the second Toronto performance on their 50 and Counting Tour. The tour is a celebration of their 50th anniversary, and the legendary rock and roll band isn't slowing down. Their performances have averaged about two and a half hours and earned rave reviews. This weekend, two members of the Rolling Stones are partying for entirely different reasons. Guitarist Ronnie Woods celebrated his 66th birthday yesterday, and drummer Charlie Watts is turning 72 today. Right now, we'll celebrate with a classic Stones hit. Here is Get Off My Cloud.
That was the Rolling Stones with Get Off My Cloud. Both Ronnie Wood and Charlie Watts are celebrating birthdays this weekend, and the Stones will be in Toronto for the second time on their 50 and counting tour this Thursday. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Come back next week when we talk to best-selling food writer Michael Pollan about how reclaiming cooking can save our food system, make us healthy, and grow democracy. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. Produced by Paul Thomas. Program director, John Vandriel. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.